right, good morning again, everyone. It's good to see you all. Well, we're continuing uh, in our series on Romans this morning, and today we're going to be looking at the second half of Romans chapter 14. And we began our study of Romans 14 last week. Uh, Pastor Eric talked about that. And we're looking at this issue in the Roman church, this conflict taking place between believers. Now, before we get back to our passage, just imagine for a second that one day I'm sitting at home and I hear coming from uh, our playroom the sound of an argument. I can hear my kids, Kaya and Grayson, beginning to fight about something. Now, at first, I kind of sit back and just listen. I'm hopeful that, you know, maybe they'll resolve it on their own, that they'll figure things out. But as the yelling kind of builds, the tension increases, I realize, okay, it's time for me to step in, time for me to intervene. So I walk into the playroom, and immediately you can just tell, like, they're not happy. They're upset with each other. You know, the body language is bad. They're kind of glaring at each other. And so I ask them, you know, what's, what's wrong? What's the problem? Now, again, imagine that this ends up being uh, a pretty typical brother-sister fight. There's a toy. They both want the toy. And they can't decide who should get the toy. And they're, so they're upset about it. Technically, the toy belongs to Kaya, but Gray thinks it's his turn. So both of them kind of think they have a claim to this toy at this moment. Both of them think it's their turn. So what should I do? How should I resolve this classic brother-sister fight? How should I help them resolve this issue? Now, obviously, there's a lot of factors. It's, it's complicated. But I do think there is actually a really good answer, a really good way of resolving this problem. And I'm going to tell you at the end of the message. So you have to remember that story. I know it's like it's a long time, but we'll get back to it. Now, in the first century Roman church, we have a pretty different situation, a pretty different conflict. But at the heart of it, there are some similarities. You have these two groups. And these aren't just any two groups. It's not just like two random kids on the playground. These groups are siblings. They are brother and sister. They're part of the same family, the same body. And they've come upon a disagreement or a conflict that they can't resolve on their own, something that they can't figure out. Both of them want their way. Both of them think they have a claim to doing things their way. And so we've now reached the point where dad or Paul has to step in to mediate, to help them resolve this issue. So what's the problem? Uh, Eric talked about this last week, but the basic, most simple version of this problem is that they are disagreeing about food. Now that might sound kind of trivial, you know, a church disagreement about food, but it's a big deal. In the same sense that a toy is very important to a six and an eight-year-old, food was very important for Christians in the early church. And the reason for that is throughout biblical history, God had always told his people that what they ate was very important. For the Jewish Christians, they remembered this history where God had told them that holiness and purity was connected to what you put 
in your body. These things are pure. These things are clean. You may eat them. These things are not. Don't eat them. And so for these Jewish Christians, what they ate was a faith issue. It was connected to their commitment to God, to their honoring him as Lord and King. And so in Roman society, for these Jewish Christians, eating meat was a big problem. It's likely that this meat had been sacrificed to idols by merchants before it came to market. And so for these Jewish Christians, they thought of this as being very unclean. The idea that it was connected to this impure, unholy act of idolatry meant that to put it in their body was just unholy. And Paul calls this group weak for many reasons, but part of it is just that their understanding of food and the gospel and their faith and their conscience uh, was weak. Now, on the other hand, you have this other group, the Gentile Christians, who Paul calls the strong. They have no objections about eating any kind of food, and they see the gospel as transcending these Old Testament food laws. Say, what goes into our bodies doesn't affect our holiness. And so this led to a, a big problem, to a conflict. And before we dive back into this, we, we can't underestimate what's at stake here. We can't underestimate why this conflict is so serious. Because this isn't just about like church cliques, right? Like they go into the refreshment room and there's one table with the Gentile, one table with the Jews, and they just, they don't, just don't hang out that much. This isn't just like an awkward family dinner where, you know, there's a conflict, nobody really wants to talk about it, so it's just awkward and everyone's uncomfortable. It's not either one of those things. This is truly an utter disruption of fellowship. To dine together in the ancient world and in the early church was about intimacy. To invite someone to sit at the table with you meant we are good. We're one. I, I, I affirm who you are, and you affirm who I am. We're family. And the sense that we get is that table fellowship, this sacred meal that represented unity and oneness, that it had been fractured. And in fact, Paul's first thing he says in chapter 14, the way he introduces this whole passage is he says, welcome one another. And he's not talking about like welcoming each other, like, hi, good morning, welcome to the Roman Baptist Church, like, it's good to see you this morning. He's saying, welcome each other to the table. Welcome one another into fellowship. This is a big deal. Because they're not doing this. Table fellowship is disrupted. The weak don't want to eat with the strong. The strong don't want to eat with the weak. And that means that they're not sharing life together. They're not sharing faith together. They're not one body. So what does Paul do? How does Paul intervene to fix this problem? Well, he begins by addressing the weak, the Jewish Christians who don't eat meat. And Pastor Eric talked about this last week, and this command, this exhortation not to judge. Don't judge your strong brothers and sisters for what they eat. And this morning, we're going to turn to Paul's exhortation to the strong. 
to how he wants them to respond and how ultimately this will solve uh, this problem. So if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, verse 13. And here Paul is finishing up his comments, his exhortations to the weak, and he's going to now turn his attention to the strong. Verse 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now we'll get into some of the nuts and bolts of this passage uh, in a bit, but let's just start with the big picture. Paul's instructions to the strong are pretty simple. He tells them, when you gather together at the fellowship table, when you gather together as a body, stop eating meat. Don't eat meat when you're with your weak brothers and sisters. Now, when you think about it, this is pretty interesting. Paul's instructions. Because you have to compare what he says to the weak to what he says to the strong. He tells the weak, hey, you guys, Adjust your attitude, right? Change the way you think about your strong brothers and sisters. Don't be judgmental. But to the strong, he says, I want you guys to change your behavior. Change how you actually act. Stop eating meat. That certainly seems like Paul has taken a side. You know, if we think about this hypothetical disagreement between my kids, you know, if I tell Grayson, hey buddy, adjust your attitude. Stop being so impatient and frustrated with Kaya. Kaya, adjust your behavior. Give Grayson the toy. Like, one kid's going to be happy and one kid's not going to be happy. I can already see the big, goofy smile Grayson's going to have as I give him the toy and I can see that look Kaya's going to have like, Dad, like what? Why are you taking his side? And it does seem as if Paul has taken sides, right? He's told the strong, hey, you guys need to give in. You wanted to eat meat, don't eat meat. Now, as 
you know, surprising as that is, that's not all. It gets even more interesting. Because what's surprising about Paul's instructions is that he actually agrees with the strong. He agrees with their position that what they eat doesn't really matter. Paul says in verse 14, I am convinced, being fully persuaded. He's like, I don't even have any doubts. I'm positive, you guys are right, that nothing is unclean in itself. He's like, I'm a Jew, but even I got to admit, you guys have it right. Eating meat is no big deal. And yet, he asks the strong to change, even though he believes they're right. And so when we think about that tension, that's something we have to resolve. We have to understand is why does Paul tell the group who's right to change? Why does Paul ask the strong to give in? And more importantly, what does this tell us about the overall message of Romans that we've been working towards this whole time? And to help us understand that question, to help us understand that tension, we need to understand a little bit about the power dynamic at play in the Roman church. See, when Paul calls the Gentile believers strong and the Jewish believers weak, he's talking about more than just faith or conscience. The word that he uses is dunatoi, which literally means powerful or empowered. The word for the weak is adunatoi, which is the opposite, powerless or unempowered. And so part of the issue here, it's not simply that the, the Gentiles are stronger in faith or conscience. It's that they are literally in the position of power in this church and in this situation. To begin with, the Gentiles were the more powerful and influential in Roman society and in the church. They're the wealthier of the two groups. They have a much higher status, greater influence within the culture at large. They have the power and privilege in this church. They're the ones who are dictating culture and decision-making. The Jews, on the other hand, are much less well-off, more vulnerable, and in a position to be dominated and marginalized when it comes to decision-making, culture, church, politics. Now, you might not think that money and influence would matter all that much in, in this particular situation, but I think this is human nature. Like, if me, Pastor Eric, and Pastor Nick went out to dinner with LeBron James, Elon Musk, and Scarlett Johansson, and we got in a disagreement about what we should eat, we're like ordering family style, and me, Eric, and Nick are like, we want ribs. Let's order ribs for the whole table. And ScarJo, Braun, and Elon are like, no, we're getting brisket. Who do you think is going to get their way? Now, I know we all know Pastor Eric is notorious for pushing people to do things his way. But really, who's getting their way? At any table, in any group, with any decision, there is a power dynamic at play. And in the Roman church, the Gentiles had it, and the Jewish Christians did not. Not only this, though, not only were the Gentiles more financially, socially powerful and influential, they were in the position of power in this specific situation. 
with the issue of food. They were in the position to act in a way that could resolve the issue. Put another way, they were in the position, they had the power to act in love. And Paul wants to make this point very clearly, so much so that he kind of repeats himself in this passage, if you notice. He wants them to see that it would be so much more difficult for the Jewish Christians or the weak to give in. Because even though their theology might have been suspect, their understanding of the gospel might have been slightly incorrect. Their opinion was built on conviction. Their opinion was built on this desire to honor God, to act in faith. It was tied to their relationship with God. And so if they were forced to eat meat, or even forced to sit at a table where meat was present, it could be genuinely damaging to their faith. They could become disillusioned with the community, disillusioned with the message of the gospel. And what Paul hints at is that these Jewish believers might actually fall away from their faith. They might actually walk away from the church, from this new community. Paul would probably admit that this was an unlikely scenario. But even so, it's an unacceptable possibility. Now, on the other hand, the Gentiles or the strong, they had the power and the opportunity to change with little consequence. And Paul says, hey, for you guys, you know, you've already told me what you believe about food and drink, that it's no big deal. So for you, it's not a faith issue. It's not a kingdom issue. It's a matter of preference. You can make the choice without risking your faith, without the possibility of compromising your conscience. And this is why Paul pushes the strong so hard. This is why Paul asks the strong to be the ones to change, because they have the opportunity in their position of power to go the extra mile out of love. They're in the position to make this hard choice to sacrifice their own authority, to sacrifice their own pride, to sacrifice their own rightness for the sake of the other, so that the weak could join the table, could sit down with them as equals freely and joyfully. See, Paul wants the strong to ask this question. What shall we do with our power? What should we do with our influence? What should we do with our authority? What should we do with our rightness? Should we use that power to uphold our position, to uphold our power, to uphold our rightness, and thus divide the community? Or should we actually disempower ourselves and thus empower the weak? to sit at the table with us without any compromise. This is the Christ-like choice. There's a mirroring here between what Paul asks the strong to do and what we see Jesus doing in Philippians 2, where we're told that Jesus, do all glory and honor and power, sitting at the right hand of God, could, could consider himself 
equal with the Father, but instead chooses to make himself nothing for our sake, out of love. The image in this passage in Philippians 2 is, is of Jesus pouring himself out, emptying himself, letting go of all the power, glory, honor that he was due to become a man and to love us. And that's what Paul asked the strong to do, to love as Jesus loved, to continue to pursue this kingdom ethic of love of neighbor. And Paul really drives the point home in the last sentence of chapter 14, which I think is a fascinating idea, where he says, everything that does not come from faith is sin. And what he means is that in some issues, not in every situation, but in many issues, what matters is not behavior, but motive. When the Bible doesn't speak of something as explicitly sin or explicitly good, when we have these gray areas in life, these kind of neutral areas in life, what matters is motive. See, the weak have the wrong belief. They misunderstand the gospel, but their genuine desire is to honor God. Their genuine desire is to show their commitment to him. So even though they're wrong, he says, that's not sin. And were they to eat meat, it would be sin because of that belief. On the other hand, the Gentiles or the strong, they have the right beliefs, and they're doing something that in a vacuum is perfectly fine. But because they are acting out of pride, out of their own power, because they're not choosing to act out of righteousness, peace, and joy, even though they're doing something that's okay, the motive has made it sinful. And this is such an important principle that Christian living is not about what am I free to do, what am I allowed to do? What kind of behavior can I rationalize and defend? That's kind of looking at things completely backwards. The question that we're meant to ask is, what should I do as a person whose motives are transformed by the kingdom, by love, by peace, by joy, by righteousness in the spirit? How can I at all times, in all situations, use whatever power I have, whatever freedom I have, for the sake of others, especially, especially those who I call my brothers and sisters in Christ, especially those who I share life with, who I share the table with? How can I use all that I am for them? Now, this obviously speaks powerfully into how we live all the time, across the board, in every situation. But it's important to consider this passage in its context, this issue of conflict. What do we do when we disagree as brothers and sisters? And we have to pay really careful attention to what Paul never says. At any point in Romans 14, he doesn't say you have to agree. You must come to consensus never says that. There are simply times when we aren't going to agree. That's just a fact. But he gives us two vital principles 
that we have to be ready and willing to apply. And when you put these two together, I think you have the potential for unity even within conflict. And the first is don't judge. If you're in a position where you're on the weaker end of things and, and you don't have a lot of control over your situation, don't judge the person who is in power. Think about them with understanding and compassion. Our tendency when we don't have control is to think bad things about those person's motives and, and get really mad and frustrated. He says, don't judge them. And he says, when you are in a position of power, when you have any ability, any authority, any influence, any way to freely bring peace, do it. Even, even if it means you have to let go of who's right and who's wrong. Even if it means sacrificing some of your own freedom, some of your rights, some of what you are entitled to, what you know you're entitled to, you got to let that go even if it means pouring out some of your own glory, some of your power, some of your honor, some of what is due you, you pour it out. We act in peace and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we see that that's a continuation. That's love of neighbor, and that is real strength. That's the kind of strength Paul is inviting them to. It's why he calls them the strong, because he says, I want you to see how strong you can be. So what would I do with Kaya and Gray? Come back. I know you're on the edge of your seats. What's he going to do? Again, this is a hypothetical question. Of course, the kids never fight. This is all imaginary. And just for the record, not a parenting class. I know every kid's different. This isn't like official parenting advice. But I think it's a good idea. And my answer is going to be based on, any, any, any answer, any solution is going to be based on what I'm trying to accomplish. Right? So if I want to teach my kids, pursue your rights. Take what's entitled to you. Don't let anyone push you around. Then I would tell Kaya, it's your toy. You have a right to it. If I want to teach them that arguing is always bad, I just take the toy away. You guys are both in trouble. If I just want them to stop fighting, if I'm just like, oh, I don't like it when you guys fight, I could make like a play schedule so everything's always perfectly fair and they never have to disagree and we just point to the schedule. It's Kaya's turn. But if the goal isn't just to figure out who's right or wrong or come up with perfect rules, but if the goal is for them to love one another, to play together well, to learn how to be in community and deal with conflict, then I think we have to pursue Paul's way of doing things. I think what I would do is I would take Grayson aside first and I would say, hey, listen, you can't be so mad about this. You can't be so angry at Kaya because, you know, it is, it is her toy. But then I would go to Kaya, the older sibling, the one who's owns the toy, it's her toy. And I would ask her, Kaya, will you share this? Will you share this with Grayson? I know it's your toy. I know you, you don't have to, but you can make him really happy if you did. And I bet you, you'll have a lot more fun than you're having now if you share the toy and you guys just play together. You could sit here and you could be mad and you could make him mad or you could reach out and you could share what's yours 
you have the power to squash this. And in a sense, that's what Paul is saying in Romans 14, and that's what so much of Romans is actually about, is him looking at this divided church and saying, I want you guys just to play together. What I want for you is to love one another. You could sit and be mad at each other. You could sit and think about all the things you don't like about those people or those people. You could sit and, you know, in your own rightness and your own entitlement and be like, I'm right, that person's wrong, I'm just going to stay here because I'm confident that I'm in the right. He says, or you could let go of all of that and enjoy fellowship, enjoy worship together, enjoy experiencing God together. And he says, look, it's, it's going to be better that way. You have to trust me. Let go of that so that you can have this because that's what God wants you to experience. And so the question he asks and the question that we need to wrestle with is how far am I willing to go for the sake of fellowship? And what am I willing to let go of in my place of power, in my place of rightness, my authority to make that happen so that we could enjoy the kind of fellowship and faith that God invites us to, that God wants for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for inviting us to your table, for inviting us to experience your goodness and your grace, the abundance of life with you. And we thank you for inviting us to sit at the table as a family, for giving us new brothers and sisters to do life with, to share in the struggle with, to celebrate with. And God, we don't want to let anything get in the way of this good community, this beautiful fellowship that you want for us. So I pray that we would be strong, that we would have the strength to choose love over self, to choose sacrifice over power, to choose giving over entitlement. Would you speak to us and encourage us to let go of those things that stand between us and genuine love? So God, would you move in this space? Would you create a spirit of fellowship just here as we worship together, as we celebrate the greatest thing we have in common? your goodness and your grace in the death and resurrection of Jesus. God, would you speak a spirit of unity into our time? We love you, Jesus. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.